Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Or else. You do this thing or else. Did you hear that a lot as a kid, Sherry? Was that one of your mom's go-tos? Um, probably. But I was a perfect child, so I didn't really <laughs> hear it that much. How about... I'm sure I heard it from my sister. Yeah, you heard it. In, yeah, your in, sister yeah. getting in trouble. Yeah, yeah, because I was perfect. How about the counting? Did you ever get the counting? Um, you, you've got until three to get in this car, to put on your shoes. Or you've got until ten. One... Two, two and a half. Probably those were things that were used before I have, like, memories about them. You know, because the counts, like... Yeah. You know. Like you said, you being such a good girl, even, child. If, yeah. even if you got counted. Well, I, I never had to hurry to get in the car, because it was the late 70s and 80s, so there weren't seatbelt laws, really, and I wanted to sit in the front seat, so I was usually the first one in the oh. car, until I got pummeled by shotgun. my sister. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Well, I just, I, it strikes me that the whole concept of an ultimatum is something that we learn early. Mm-hmm. We learn about consequences and we learn who's in charge and things like that. And so <laughs> the idea of telling someone you do this or else is something that most kids have experience with. As soon as they are able to grasp the English language, or I guess I suppose whatever language, I'm, yeah. I'm sure ultimatums are not reserved for the English language. But they have a different meaning. They have a different impact. Ultimatums do mm-hmm. in adulthood, and certainly they are a very common tool that's employed with varying degrees of success when it comes to alcoholism and an alcoholic relationship, an alcoholic marriage. Let's talk about our experience with ultimatums in our marriage. Honestly, I've said many times that I feel like there was a 10-year period when I was in active addiction. From, And the way I calculate that 10 years is from the first time that I was conscious enough of the fact that there was a serious problem to decide to quit. And so I tried to quit until the point where I actually made it and I quit for good, quit drinking for good. That spanned a decade. With lots of relapses, lots of rules around my drinking, lots of attempts at sobriety, and then deciding, no, I think I'm strong enough, I can drink again, back and forth, back and forth. And over that 10 traumatic years for you, I can really only remember an ultimatum once, and I it's even a foggy memory at that. At one time where you said, you quit drinking or it's over. And I don't even remember... The specifics, like was I going to get kicked out or were you going to leave? Do you remember? Uh, I don't remember. I don't feel like I used a lot of ultimatums because I had a feeling they didn't work because you were such an arguer and I just didn't feel like it was in my wheelhouse. Probably I would have left with the kids. Yeah. Because, you know, I felt like everything was in your name. I was... Staying home most of the time, not working at the bakery that much. Like, I just felt like I had no power, so I probably would have said I, lo- I would leave. The house was in, and is in both of our names. Yeah, but I felt like that. Yeah, okay. Like, That's I don't fair. have the financial means to, to 
take over a house payment. And It's funny. You've talked about that before. I know that's a very real concern. Other people that we've met in similar situations have talked about that. So I'm not downplaying the importance in your mind of that. What's interesting about it is at that time, that didn't go through my mind a lot at all. The only exception is that you and I owned a small business. We owned a bakery together. And when we were first setting it up, some lawyer friend, someone with experience had advised us to make you the majority owner because there were all kinds of advantages for women-owned businesses, none of which did we ultimately no. find at any point in the process. I never felt like we got any you know, accolades or that or any invitations. Of... But when things got tough between us, I would on occasion have in the back of my mind that you owned 51% of the business and I owned 49 I never had any illusion that you would want to run it on your own. I knew you didn't want to do that. But I did, when we would get to the point of talking about potential separation, I did think about how that would get messy. I never thought about the house, which was 50-50. I know one of the things that we did when we had small kids, if we would go to buy a car, you know, I would stay to do the paperwork. So ultimately the car would be in my name, but we had small kids and someone had to go home with the kids and and you just did that, and I stayed and did the paperwork. It was never, I never, the cars weren't in my name because I was like, ha, 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 now she can't leave. Like, never even a little bit crossed my mind. But that was a concern of yours. Yeah. I think that's interesting. <coughs> and, and, I mean, it makes sense. It's, it's the point where you as an individual are at the disadvantage that you think about that. So, in the case of, you know, I never thought about the cars because they were in my name, so... That wasn't a concern of mine. And the one thing I did think about was the one thing that you were a 51% owner of, the mm -hmm. business. So it makes sense that that was a concern of yours. But so the messiness and the point of, you know, I don't want to use, it's a terrible word, but relative weakness, like you weren't at, a, at an advantage. Those were the kinds of things that went through your head when you thought about putting out an ultimatum? Yeah. I suppose, like, being at a disadvantage of not having a, a job separate from the bakery and um, child-rearing, I would have not been able to maintain the house, and I didn't feel like it would have been something that I felt, I guess, fair or made sense, that I would kick you out of the house you were paying for. Hmm. Um. And that I would, you know, I would also felt like you, I didn't, didn't have people, I, I, I needed, I would have left and I probably would have went to stay with my family and that would have given us distance and I would have had like a stronghold. They would have protected me a little bit, I guess, from you during oh, 100%. that ugly time. Absolutely. But you didn't see your contribution to the bakery as well as your contribution on the home front as i mean you just said i was paying for the house i didn't yeah. see it that way i saw it as a partnership well, i feel like a lot of times during some of our arguments you would make me feel mm. like i wasn't contributing oh yeah that nasty evil gaslighting and vile things that i could conjure up absolutely yeah yeah I said those things. I admit I remember when, I mean, when we were looking into the franchise and we had had an interview with the franchise board members 
they were just talking about how it needed two people to run it. You know, you couldn't do it on your own. And, and we went back to our hotel and you're like, I'll do it all. I mean, you just stay home with the kids. Like, I'll do it all. You know, like that was your attitude in a lot of ways. And I did feel sometimes because you were the majority owner that put your sweat equity there. Like you were there more than I was because I was home with the kids because you couldn't breastfeed. <laughs> you know, so like, not that you didn't take your time staying home with the kids and eventually, and I went into work, but I didn't feel like I had as much say in it because you were the one that was making the financial decisions for the bakery. I would want to do something. You would think that I hadn't thought it through. Yeah. I was very dismissive of your ideas. Yeah. It, it almost right off the bat didn't go quite as we had planned so I felt a lot of stress and pressure right away yeah. and I wasn't good with stress and pressure and I would dismiss your ideas pretty quickly yeah and then I think I came back in arguing in defense whenever things had gone wrong and I would say you know you wanted to do this at the bakery you 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 and I'd throw it all on you yeah. but I feel like I felt early on like I was not allowed to be as engaged yeah, no question. It it It's it, funny how stress does that to you. Yeah, it was never my intention to do that, to make the decisions and to leverage control to keep you bound to the relationship or to um, make you feel like you had no other option. That just never went through my mind. It was definitely a stress reaction. But we've talked about this a lot. I have so much more respect for your opinion, your intelligence, your thoughtfulness now in permanent sobriety than I ever did as a drinker. Yeah. I, I, it's embarrassing to admit, but hey, I admit a lot of embarrassing things. I totally didn't respect your. Yeah, and I mean, you had thoughts. You know, I had the business school degree, and you had a culinary degree. And so when it came to recipes in the bakery, I absolutely turned that over to you and was eager for you to create new things. Yeah. But when it came to running the business, I didn't I didn't give you much of a time of day. Yeah, and I feel like, you know, you would run something across me and I'm like, I'm a consumer. I'm the one that's out there yeah. at the grocery stores. I not only shop at one grocery store, I am not loyal to any grocery store chain. I go to all of them almost every time I shop still. Like, there are certain things I like at certain stores, right. so I go there. I was at Target. You know, I'm like, I am the consumer. I am the person that you were trying to sell to, and I feel like you also made sure to dismiss me, and you would say, Mom's with kids, Mom's with kids, and I'm like, standing in the corner going, Hello, I'm a mom with kids. What would I want to see when I come into the bakery? What Be quiet, would I Sherry. Want? I'm trying to figure out what Mom's with kids would yeah. want to do. Yeah, so, I mean, it... it so, I, I feel like... Yes, I feel like there is a better respect there than there now than there ever has been. So, sorry, I'm no. a little snuffly after yeah. crying. Yeah, sure. Well, it's not even just the crying. You got a little bit of a cold. Yeah, should, a little cold. We should own up to because you're nasally. I'm just only gonna sound worse if you make me cry that. like you're going to. I didn't think episode. this one would make you cry at all. Yeah, I didn't think that would make me cry. Well. Thanks for your honesty. But so you were in a position where maybe on paper you were the majority owner of the bakery and 50% owner of the house. I mean, we say owner. 
you had 50% of the responsibility for the huge mortgage. Yeah. And the, like I said, the cars never occurred to me. I mean, I'm not, I can't imagine I would ever, honestly, honestly, I don't think I would have ever have gotten so vindictive that if you had taken one of the cars and the kids that I would have called the police and said, you stole my car. Well, that's what now, I was I afraid that, of, well, like afraid in a crazy, yeah. drunken, revengeful mode, but I didn't see you as a revenge kind of guy, but also I thought, gosh, you know. It would not even have occurred to me that I had that legal right. I would have thought as, in fact, I'm not sure how the law would react to that as a married couple with shared assets i'm not sure that it mattered would have mattered whose name the car was in maybe i'm wrong but it it never occurred to me but it kept you uh, it was a huge concern for you yeah really really interesting so and i didn't so for you in order to put forth an ultimatum and to follow through on it and i see exactly where you're coming from it would have involved you and the kids going back from denver colorado where we lived to Indiana, where you're from, for the protection and shelter and love of your family. And a big concern would have been, could you even get there before I called the police and had you arrested for stealing a car? And the kids. I was worried about that. Like, Hmm. would I have had your permission to take across state lines? You know, like you, I don't know what the laws are, but that was something that, like, worried me. When When we talked to other couples especially loved ones, one of the top things that is cited as a reason for staying when things are really, really bad are is financial. It's not because we just love each other so much and we've got to work through this trouble. It's, you know, we have made a life choice whereby I am a stay-at-home mom and I don't know how we could survive financially if we separate. I would say that's at the top of the list of reasons mm-hmm. that people give when they really, in their heart of hearts, want to go, but they, they can't. That's the can't. Yeah. And that played significantly into our relationship. Yeah. So do you remember the time that I'm remembering that you did give me an ultimatum, quit drinking or else? Or is it too foggy, too long I think it's ago? too long ago and too foggy. I'm sure... I, I I think part of the reason that I don't remember it is because maybe there have been times where I've thought it, but I never said it out loud because I wouldn't follow through. Yeah. And so, you know, I actually did keep my mouth quiet. Um, well, like I said, I I never gave you enough credit for your intelligence and your thoughtfulness back then when I was a drinker. But right here, you're just proving your thoughtfulness and your intelligence because if you have questions about whether or not you'll follow through, an ultimatum is not the way to go. It's it's the kind of thing that if you're going to put it out there, you have absolutely got to do the or else. Yeah. And if you don't, then you've lost all credibility and no future threats or ultimatums will carry any weight whatsoever. And that's the trap that a lot of people find themselves in. The one time, like I said, that we you did give me an ultimatum, neither of us remember the specifics, but I do remember that you didn't follow through. And, I mean, for, for all the reasons that you've cited, I'm not criticizing you for not following through, but it just, you know, it didn't... God, I make this sound like we're in combat, but active alcoholism feels a lot like combat. 
it didn't strengthen your position any that you had at mm-hmm. least one time, I think just one time, um, given me an ultimatum and not followed through. Well, I know I would often <clears throat> say things like, you know, maybe we should get a divorce because I felt like that, that was a little bit of a lengthier process mm-hmm. and that would have involved a lot of other people. So saying maybe we should get a divorce if we can't work things out is a bit different because there is the legality of it, the separation of assets, the the telling of people. Like if I were just to get up and leave, I feel like that's a little that's a lot harder. Yeah. Yes, I'm saying that divorce is hard too, but it's like a different there's, hard. Yeah, that's a different hard. And there has to be sobriety. It's not just in the middle of the night. I get up and pull the kids and we leave. Yeah. Like, there's a... I mean, maybe that's step one, but, like, there's well, a lot more involved in the process of divorce. We both threatened divorce at the height of arguments. I don't feel like... I can't remember times where we were having serious, earnest discussions about divorce that lasted weeks and we were you know, talking about how we were going to go about it and who was going to use what lawyer. Like, it never got there. I don't think. that. No. My recollection is the only time either of us talked about divorce was in the middle of a screaming match at 2 o'clock in the morning. And that's when divorce came up. Yeah. <clears throat> I suppose. I feel like sometimes there had had been some lingering conversation the next day, maybe when we're licking our wounds, but like, I, I remember a conversation once or twice about like, is it, is it too late? Is it worth it? Is too much has happened? Yeah. I'm sure you're right. We want to draw a distinction between boundaries and ultimatums. Ultimatums are basically what we've been talking about for the last 17 minutes and they, you know, I, in our experience, certainly in our personal experience, there was no effectiveness of ultimatums. But even in what we see out there in the big bad alcoholism world, they're rarely effective for all the reasons that we just discussed. Boundaries, on the other hand, those are a good tool. Boundaries can have an impact. And so let's let's talk about the differences. First of all, when I was in active alcoholism, you and I didn't do enough research we didn't do enough relationship reading. I did a lot of sobriety reading, right? How yeah. do I stop being an alcoholic? But we didn't do enough relationship work or codependency work or I'm the spouse of an alcoholic kind of work to really understand what boundaries were. Would you agree with that? I, I don't I don't remember boundaries talks when I was drinking. No, I don't. I don't remember that. I feel like some of the closest... <clears throat> That I got to that was like a a book on marriage and it was a big thick book. I don't even remember what it is. I passed it on to one of our coworkers at um at the bakery. Um but it just talked about like arguing fairly and taking time to listen to each other mm-hmm. and just some tips, but it was not in a relationship where there was an active addiction. So did it wasn't very helpful. Did the book about arguing fairly talk about not texting with your loved one when they're in the other room? We got a lot, a lot of feedback we on that did. last week's we podcast. Did. Yeah, I guess, I guess we just we're just too old. I don't know. 
I, I still stand behind what we said. I know a lot of people said that's the only safe way to argue because you don't get sucked or into the safe verbal way to discussion. Is what I heard. True. Safe way to communicate because then there is it's black and white. But it didn't sound like like that was my comment. But I certainly appreciate all that that feedback, and I love when yeah. people push back and disagree with us. Yeah, gives us stuff to think about. Um, but no, it didn't mention anything about texting because I think the book was. Before that was commonplace. Even before your cool slide-out keyboard phone? Yeah, well, I don't know. thing was sweet. So, here's the distinction that I would draw between boundaries and ultimatums. <laughs> boundaries uh, contain I statements. Here's what I need. I need this out of the relationship. I need this out of the family. This is what I need to feel safe in my home. Ultimatums are about you. You need to stop drinking or you need to get the hell out. You need to stop drinking or we're getting a divorce. You need to stop drinking or I'm packing up the kids and we're going back to live with my family. And that's a really big and important distinction. Ultimatums, because they are about another person, I'm going to tell you the decisions you need to make and how you need to live your life. We don't have any control. So... It's a really scary red line to draw. Don't ever cross this red line again or else I'm going to do this other thing. But then you don't have any control over what that person does or doesn't do. And especially when we're talking about a neurological disease like alcoholism, that person's not in their right mind all the time. They they might, you know, in a moment of clarity say, yeah, I'll never drink again. You're right. I like your ultimatum. Leave me if I ever drink again. But then the triggers happen and the subconscious mind is in control and the physical and neurological cravings are there and they drink and they really, 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 really didn't want to. And so really neither party is in control of that situation. The the alcoholic hasn't found the program that's going to work for them to stop drinking yet. And the loved one certainly doesn't have any control whatsoever. And they've drawn this line in the sand that if it's crossed, you know, you blow the whole thing up. It's it's a really tough position for everyone to be put in when we draw those ultimatums that are about you. So I'm a big fan of boundaries and not a fan of ultimatums. I don't know if you can tell, Sherry, by the way I'm yes. describing it. Yes. But the I statements, they just, they just make, you know, a lot more sense. The other reason ultimatums are tough is a lot of us alcoholics, a lot of us high-functioning alcoholics, are pretty smooth talkers. So when you draw the line in the sand and you're trying to actually enforce it, you're trying to do the thing you said you were going to do, we employ a number of tactics, I suppose most of which fall into the category of gaslighting, but we either tell you... You know, you're too weak to go out on your own. You can't make it. You couldn't live without me. You're not worthy. We go that kind of really mean, nasty route. Or we start begging for forgiveness. I'm so sorry. I I didn't mean to drink again. You know, X, Y, and Z happened. And I had all this stress. And somebody came to my house and poured it down my throat. It wasn't my fault. And so there's a variety of uh, tactics that we alcoholics use to either beg for forgiveness or put it all on you and tell you you're not worthy. 
And so the ultimatum, you know, this isn't an ultimatum in like a business dealing where you're selling widgets to another company and if they don't pay within your terms, you're going to stop doing business with them with no emotional relationship. Those ultimatums are easy to stand behind. This is an ultimatum with the person with whom you've chosen to bond yourself and supposedly spend the rest of your life and create new humans with in many cases. And so the emotional aspect just makes enforcing the ultimatum just really difficult, especially when you've got a manipulative, smooth talker on the other end. Mm -hmm. Is that part of how you felt? I did, but I I don't feel like I had boundaries either because my argument is once you're drinking, they're all out the window. Mm -hmm. Even though they're all about me, I am not going to engage in you when you drink. I am not going to engage in the argument that you want to start, Matt. I am not going to... You're you're in my face. Mm-hmm. You're drunk. You do whatever the hell you want. Mm-hmm. That's how I feel like boundaries like wouldn't have been great mm-hmm. for us even. I, I mean, I could have held to him. I could have, you know, but you were the kind that would have walked around the room. I don't know. Maybe if I had done it often enough, you would have, you know, if I would have just kept my mouth shut whenever you were... Try starting an argument if I had held to I'm not going to engage with you when you're drinking or you know had had been more forceful and used them time and time and time again I'm sure they would have worked but I would have caved because there would have been poor behavior on your part that could have woken up the kids on in our small house you know that's what I would have been worried about well and you've got a bit of a temper and you are emotionally engaged in the situation so just because you state this is my boundary I don't holding think I to that's really through. difficult but he, but here's the thing I, I think there's a better chance I think people have a better chance at enforcing boundaries than they do ultimatums oh for sure because again boundaries are about me this is what I'm prepared to do and where we've seen people have success with boundaries it's been you know not you're not allowed to drink in our house anymore, but I'm not going to live, again, I statement, I'm not going to live in a household where there's alcohol anymore. And so if you bring it into this house, I'm out of here. And boy, is that unfair? A hundred percent. It is not fair that the, the person that's stable, peaceful, doing the right thing, holding the family together, that that person has to leave when alcohol enters the household. But there's nothing fair about alcoholism. It's just a nasty, vile disease, and it causes all kinds of turmoil. And so if you want to spend a lot of time saying, here's my boundary. If you drink, you got to leave. You got to go to your parents' house, or you got to go to your friend's house, or you got to go to a hotel. If you drink, you've got to do that. That's... Again, unenforceable. Tell a drunk guy whose name's on the deed that he's got to leave the house. Good luck. When he's sober, he might agree to that. You're right. You're right. You're right. My drinking's caused a lot of problems. If I ever drink again, I'll go to a hotel if I drink. But then wait till he's drunk. He's yeah. not going to agree to that. Or in many cases, he's not going to agree to that. Right. So, and then you don't want that drunk person driving to go that's a good to a point as well. place. I'm not, but I just want to clarify, I'm not saying that boundaries don't work. I think that I would have had to practice them and I would have had to been more 
mature and contained and had more education before I started using boundaries. Right now, I'm just emotionally a spitfire and I'm engaged in the situation and I would have lost my own sense of boundaries for myself. Like, I'm not going to engage in your argument. I'm not going to, you know... Well, I think it's a really good point that you make because I think a lot of people who try setting boundaries, they give up pretty quick and start beating themselves up because, well, that didn't work. I tried and it didn't work. It's not easy. Yeah, it's, I think, yeah. It takes practice. Yeah, and I'm I'm just, uh, like you mentioned, I have a bit of a temper. So it would have been as much work for me to hold those boundaries and practice those. And I probably would have given in. It probably wouldn't have even been you that broke, quote unquote, my boundary. It would have been me, like, for several go-arounds. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe you're right. But but so, the, again, the, so the boundary has to be an I statement. This is what I'm willing to live with. And this is what I'm willing to do about it if my boundary is crossed. And it really does, I think, certainly everything we've seen, it has to be unfair as it might be, that person with the boundary has to be the one that's willing to take action and make the change. Not always, not always. Some alcoholics are nicer than I was and listen to the demands of their spouse when they've crossed that boundary line. But... I just think from a mindset standpoint, so many people that we meet when we first start interacting with them, their questions are things like, what can I do to get my husband to stop drinking? How can I control his drinking? How can I convince him? How can I show him he needs to go to rehab? How can I make this other human change? Well, nobody can make other humans change. And so the the reason boundaries, I think, are healthy and important as opposed to ultimatums, is because at least you've got a fighting chance there. The question perhaps should rather be, rather than what can I do to make my husband go to rehab, what can I do to start to get healthy myself? And so that's going to involve boundaries about the the thing things in your environment that you're willing to tolerate. Maybe Maybe you're at a place where uh, drinking a couple of beers and not getting drunk is tolerable to you. Well, that's your boundary for right now. Your boundary is I'm not willing to live in an environment with drunkenness, but I'm not eliminating alcohol completely from my boundary at this point. And see, what's important about this boundary work is the boundaries can change. If that's your boundary for now, that's not one I would recommend, honestly. I'm a big fan of uh, all or nothing but but if that's the boundary you're willing to live with, what's the consequence if that person who you've said, yes, you can have alcohol in your life, you just can't get drunk, what's your consequence for when they get drunk? It can't be a consequence on them. It's got to be something you're willing to do. Mm-hmm. I'm going to sleep in the spare bedroom in the basement, or I'm going to go to my mother's house, or I'm going to a hotel. It ha- in order for a boundary to be enforceable, it has to be something that you yourself can enforce without the cooperation of a drunk person. Because drunk people aren't particularly cooperative. Yeah. Would you agree with that? 
Absolutely. It's really important if you're new at this boundary stuff or if if you're just maybe just now trying to understand the difference between ultimatums and boundaries or maybe you've been practicing for a while and you haven't had a great deal of success, don't beat yourself up. And don't beat yourself up if you're not there yet and you're still accepting bad behavior. We welcome new people into our Echoes of Recovery group all the time and they meet these strong, experienced people who have for months now been practicing boundaries and they hear them talk about them and they hear them talk about the success they're having with their boundaries. And when the newbie hears that, you can't help but feel bad about yourself as a newbie. Well, I don't do anything like that. I don't know if I could. I don't know if I've got the strength. I don't know what the heck my boundaries should even be. Right. And it's really easy to see people who are experiencing the same disease, but they've progressed further and they're better at boundaries and they're they're getting healthier and not just admiring them, but also looking at that like, oh, I could never be that. I might as well give up. It's really important not to do that. There is a cycle to this. There is a kind of a lifespan that plays out when it comes to dealing with an alcoholic spouse or alcoholism in any family or friend group. There, there's a cycle to it. And if you're not there yet, if you're not where other people are, guess what? They didn't used to be there yet either. Mm-hmm. Took us 10 years for me to get sober. Well, and I, I'm still impressed in learning, in my learning, you know, still today. Like we didn't, like our, our reason for doing this is because we didn't do any of the things you were supposed to 100%. do. This is stuff we learned. You know, I wonder now, like not saying you drink, but I'm like, you know, I feel like I've gotten a little stronger, but I'm still kind of bad at boundaries. Like even with the kids, like you can have boundaries. You don't do ultimatums when they're teenagers, but boundaries with the kids and our very argumentative um, sixth grader. Mm-hmm. He's he wore me down. That's probably why I had no boundaries abilities. Like when you were still actively drinking, because I was just tired. Yeah, was tired with number four, and he was such a handful. But I, I, you know, I, I think, gosh, I wish I had had the knowledge of boundaries, and that it did that it took a while, and it took lots of practice. And you can change your boundaries. You don't have to start out with this really big boundary, like no drinking in the house, like you said. Yes. You know your alcoholic is not going to give it up, but you can say there's not going to be an overconsumption where you're drunk and belligerent or drunk and, you know, manic, however your um, drunk goes. But you can have like two or three beers and I'm fine with that. After that, I'm not fine with that, you know. And I'm willing to I'm, yes. sleep in a different room or go yes. to a hotel or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that's hard. It's really hard. It it takes practice. And I would be the mindset of oh, I'm just giving up. I'm kind of like that, you know. I'm a little bit of a pessimist, so oh, it's too much work. That would, it, but I think in the long run, if I had practiced it and had more, and I think that it has to come also from like a self esteem place too, because you're worth something. You and your marriage are worth something. Your relationship is worth something more than just letting this person act, continue to act like this for their, you know, like towards you. You don't have to put up with the bad behavior because you're worth more. And I feel like there were a lot of times where I didn't feel like I had that self-confidence or self-esteem or, or worthiness. 
I would add to that, or you just hadn't been through enough bad yet. And I know that sounds awful, but yeah. but because it's an emotional relationship, a bond to the person you you love and are trying to spend the rest of your life with, it's it's not a it's not as simple as you know. Oh, your bad behavior equals divorce. I mean, you're kind of learning and you're trying to fix it and you're hoping it gets better. You've got all these emotional components to it that make it really, really, really hard. You and I will meet people on a fairly regular basis. It's certainly the minority of people we meet, but when we hear their story, you know, out of uh, earshot of that person, we you know we can't help it. To think, but think that's that's not going to work. That situation is not resolvable, and so the the work that that person has to do is to to come to that realization on their own. You and I never have, and I don't think we ever will. We have never told someone you just need to get a divorce and move on. I mean, that's not our role, right? Absolutely. I don't think that's a therapist's role either. Personally, I don't think that's a psychologist's role. I think the role is to help the person get healthy and they will come to that realization on their own. And so the the point I'm trying to make here is that there is a you know a process to it. You, let, let's use a tangible example from our relationship. I you know my relapses weren't like oh I'm sober and then I just I I couldn't help myself and I bought vodka and I drank it. Now there is a, a brain chemistry reason why that happens. Um, so I'm not poo-pooing that. If that if that's how your alcoholic's response is, I don't know how I ended up at the liquor store. That's a real thing. But that wasn't my relapse story. My relapse story was I would be sober for a while and I would still be depressed and I would still be anxious, like really bad, depressed and anxious. And I would say, I don't understand. If I'm not going to get healthy in sobriety, I might as well drink. And then I would start working on what my new set of rules was going to be. I'm only going to drink on the weekends or only beer and wine. I'll never drink hard alcohol again. Stuff like that, right? And so I would come to you and tell you, okay, I'm going to drink again. And I, you know, it would be a crushing blow when I would say that. It would be horrible for you to hear. But then I would explain... Here's my new rules. Here's what I'm going to try to do. You and I didn't know any better. I legitimately was trying to control my consumption with those new rules. Yeah. And you didn't know any better either. And you, I mean, I you were way more skeptical and reluctant than I was. Because I'm a pessimist <clears throat> and I was sober. So I would saw, see that your rules did not hold Yeah. all the time. Pessimist and sober and as it turns out, really smart. But... You, there was still, I mean, you still had hope sometimes that maybe, yeah. maybe this one will work. Who knows? Kind of yeah. a throw your arms up in the air. What the hell? What am I going to say anyway? Well, then let's see if this one works. Right? Yeah. So <coughs> now, after all that we've been through, if I said to you, hey, Sherry, I've decided I'm going to drink again, but I'm only going to drink Coors Light, <laughs> which I, that was one of my rules for a while. You remember that one? Oh. Yeah. Was, uh, oh, drink was, like light beer. I'm only going to drink light beer because they're lower in alcohol. Uh, 
That just compared meant, to your double. That IPs. just meant three times as many cans in the recycling and more urine all around the toilet because <laughs> you you wouldn't be completely drunk, but you would be so full of, of liquid. Yeah, you couldn't like control it. So if I came to you and I said I've got this new plan and here's what I'm gonna do and it's gonna work this time, I mean you would laugh right there in my face at this right. point. I would, yeah, because you know what you know. But when you don't know what you know, when you haven't gotten there, when you haven't yeah. experienced enough, it's it's really hard to establish boundaries. It's really hard to enforce boundaries. If you don't know what you don't know, then you don't know. Right. And I mean, to kind of walk through that scenario of you would come up with new rules, you would present them, I would be sad. But I was also like, yeah, but he was still a miserable sack of crap. When he wasn't drinking for those 30 days or whatever, you know? Yeah. Like, you were mopey and pouty, and I, in my head, I was like, what a little baby. Like, yeah. honestly, I got yeah. confession time. I was like, you're such a baby. You're so spoiled. You want everything your way. Yeah. And that you're not getting it your way, which I didn't realize it was brain chemistry. Yeah. I didn't realize how long it would take for your brain to heal, but I was like, he's not getting his way. He's still pouting around. He could really change his attitude if he wanted to. So now he comes back and presents to me, oh, it's not working. I don't feel happy. I'm just worse. I'm sad. I'm like, fine. You know? Whatever. Whatever. You've often said the devil you knew was better than the devil you didn't know. Or- yeah, and Yeah. Yeah, I felt like I knew how to handle you a lot of times when you were drinking. So now in longer term sobriety, now that the brain chemistry has been restored, do you feel like sobriety is better than drunk Matt? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, it but, took a while and I, I, I'm i sorry, I didn't mean to jump in on you, but no, it please. took a while, but... I feel like every day it's getting better. Like I said at the beginning of the podcast, like I feel that you respect my opinion. Yeah. Even though you would say things that were compliments in the past when you were drinking, I didn't feel the respect. I didn't feel like you appreciated my opinion. Yeah. And that, that was hard for me because I appreciated your opinion sooner than you felt that I appreciated your opinion. Understandably so. You had a lot of bad experiences to work through. And we talk about, when we talk about resentment processing, a big part of that is replacing bad memories with good ones. And it takes time to replace bad memories with good ones. Yeah. And so... And when, you know, when you have experience, like you said, the experience of of your opinions being dismissed uh or forgotten because... You had really terrible memory when you were drinking. I mean, we used to think that I'm like the elephant and I have this I great memory. I wonder if there's but... a relationship between oh, gee, alcohol I wonder. and bench. I wonder. I wonder where we could find that out. But... I wonder if there's any tool that we could use. <laughs> but I mean... Encyclopedias? But you would like often just even not even be thinking and understanding and recognizing and putting into your brain what I was saying. So you'd be like, you said that? I'm like, yes, I said that. And you totally dismissed... My idea or my opinion or my thought or our plan. My plan. You know, because you just didn't even remember. So I didn't think about alcohol as ruining your memory. And that seems really unbelievable that I'm saying that out loud now. Yeah. 
even when you didn't have a beer in your hand, you were still drunk. You were still drinking, you know? Well, like your brain was my still... My brain was yeah. still yeah. damaged by alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. So, so when you're the loved one and you're sharing your ideas and they're often forgotten or looked over, you don't put two and two together to think, oh, well, their brain is being damaged by the alcohol, so of course they don't have a good memory. We hear people say all the time, you'll know when you know. And this applies to various aspects of this whole alcoholism and recovery thing. Certainly it applies to when people have decided that their relationship is over. It's unsalvageable. The drinker just isn't getting sober. And you've run out of gas to wait for that to happen. So you know when you know that the relationship is over. But, you know, I would argue that that applies to boundary work as well. You know when you're in a position to enforce that boundary and when you're not. There, You might be in a position where you're still willing to let your alcoholic try to put rules around the drinking because they think they can control the uncontrollable. That is, I'm here to tell you long term, not a solution. It is not going to work. But there's just stuff you've got to experience for yourself. Hopefully, by working on yourself, by listening to this podcast, by reading books, by getting involved in support groups, you'll shorten the duration of that time where you're having these negative experiences yourself. Maybe it doesn't have to be 10 years for you. Maybe you can learn it all in six months. But you are going to have to know for yourself when it's time. So if you're, boundary, if you're new to boundaries and you're not very good at them and you... You can't enforce them. And like you were describing, Sherry, you're, you've got a short temper and you get sucked in and you start screaming and yelling and then all the boundaries are out the window and the drunk is drinking and the sober person screaming and, you know, don't beat yourself up for that. This is awful emotional human work. But you'll know. You'll know when you get to the point where enforcing boundaries is your only option for you. Not for that person that's choosing or not choosing to drink, but for you. You just can't tolerate it anymore. And when that happens, you'll be good at boundaries. But don't beat yourself up when you're not good at boundaries. Yeah. So we let's talk a little bit about what boundaries look like for us now in a healthy marriage. You know, when I was thinking about this, we always we always try to to take that turn toward the end of the podcast episodes where we're talking about more positive things. Try to, not always. But when I was thinking about taking the turn, I was thinking of what what words come to mind when I think of our, you know, the boundaries that exist for us now. And the two phrases that came to my mind are peace. That's a word, not a phrase. But then the <laughs> phrase is <laughs> signs of respect. So I feel like we live a pretty peaceful existence. I mean, for teenagers and, you know, <coughs> kinds of work and other requirements, right? So not, I notice I didn't say unstressful, still exceedingly stressful, but peaceful and there are signs of respect. And so some examples of that, here's a good one. 
when I walk through a room that you're in, I no longer slap you on the ass or try to grab a boob. Oh, I don't know if you've ever slapped me on the ass. Yeah, that was more I of a boob I probably guy. would have turned around <laughs> and slapped you in the face. It's pretty bad. Sorry. But, but that, you know, am I more um, turned on by you than you are by me? Absolutely. 3,000% more. No question. But as a sign of respect and to keep peace in the relationship, I don't ever just walk by and grab you in a sexual way. Yeah. And I used to when I was a drinker. I used to think it was cute. And I don't know. What's the word? Kind of. Romantic. Well, yeah. Think about how I say that. I guess. You're not a big romantic um, yourself. I always thought, yeah. Like, it would always be when my back is turned. Like, cheeky. Is that the word? Or, no? Uh, playful. Playful. Risky. Uh, like a turn-on. Ooh. Someone just squeezed the the flesh ball on the front of my chest. That, must, that feels I'm, great. While I have a knife in my hand and I'm at the cutting board. Yeah. That was always your favorite place to do it, but... Yeah. But there's a lot more... But yeah, you don't... Peace and respect now, because one of your boundaries is you don't like that, <laughs> and I now know that you don't like that. You so, knew all along, you just didn't care. But I know that's like not it. fair. That's not fair. I... I thought you didn't God, know what you what knew. Dumbass. I didn't even believe you when you would tell me you didn't like that. Oh, she does too. She's just being mean. God, man. Arrogant. Yeah. So arrogant. That's Re- dumb. Dumb and arrogant. No question. But we don't do that anymore. You know, I was thinking about this too. Another example of how our relationship has changed. You and I don't tease each other very much anymore. And we used to. And I think that's really healthy. Now, you and I are vicious toward other people. <laughs> Not to their faces. Not to their faces. But like, you know, neighbors and and people that we have that we work with in the community, you know, that um, maybe make questionable decisions. Is that a fair way to say that? Politicians for sure. They're everybody's fair yes. game, right? Yeah. But you and I anybody are, in the public eye is fair game. Oh yeah. But so. if, if we can get a laugh between the two of us, a little chuckle going yeah. at the expense of another person, we, we're pretty vicious. Yeah, pretty pretty callous that way. Yeah, pretty shallow. Shallow. Yeah, not not just not very nice. Yeah. Or or as we said on our Echoes call a few days ago, a different kind of a nice. A different kind of nice. Well, I will say I had a friend in high school that we used to say, well, if you can't talk about your friends... Who can you talk about? But it doesn't change the way we treat those people, and we still love them. Yeah. Oh, the yeah. The people that we that we riff. Yeah. A bit. We left a church once because the <laughs> minister gave a sermon on how you shouldn't talk badly about people even when they or even when they can't hear it. That wasn't the only reason <laughs> I was we left say, that I church. There was a lot more reasons. There were a lot of reasons, but it, that was right toward the end and. I remember that sermon. It is like, oh, pretty... Um, what, what are we supposed to talk about if we're not going to talk about other people? It is pretty bad. It is pretty bad. Because we are, like, comparing ourselves to them. Yeah. I, I don't like know. We're sizing up, but... I, I had a boss once that I really, really respected. And he said to all the guys that worked for him, all the people that worked for him, he said, I'm okay with you guys talking behind my back. Just make sure I'm out of earshot. I don't want to hear it. It would hurt my feelings. And I really liked that. It's okay for 
for people to get stuff off their chest in that yeah. way. But what's changed in our relationship is we don't do that to each other anymore. Uh-uh. I know that my words can hurt you pretty easily. And I know that your words can hurt me pretty easily. And I don't feel like, like for instance, like for instance, <laughs> my hair is not receding. <laughs> However, there isn't as much of it as there used to be. And you could very easily uh, make thinning hair jokes if you want. But you don't, right. which is nice of you. So I just try to make no comments. Yeah, and then you snicker to yourself, which is fine. You're well, talking I... about me to myself, to yourself, behind my back. That's fine. One that thing, I, my feelings. along the lines of that, I feel like I don't involve myself in like that husband bashing. That like that like a group of wives group of would wives. do. And and I stopped that several years ago, even when you were drinking, there were two that were just terrible. And we were all a good group of friends. There were like six or seven of us that hung out and there were three couples. And I felt like it just, it just made me more mad at you when I got back together with you, if we had been separated. Now, most of the time you were probably shit face. By the time, like, if the girls went to do something and the guys went to do something, Mm. like, play golf, you guys were probably pretty toasty. Mm -hmm. And you, of course, were the worst Mm -hmm. drunk of them. We're the best. I mean, it depends on your perspective. (laughs) Yeah. I could drink a lot, but I sure am like an idiot. I won the drinking. (laughs) I won the drinking. I'm the idiot crown. But I felt like I stopped doing that because it made me feel really disconnected to you and it made me feel really gross and then I realized it was making me more angry when we would get back together. Yeah. That's interesting. But um so teasing each other I never liked, but teasing each other face to face or being respectful of our of each other outside of the relationship. Like you didn't get together with your soccer mates and have beer after your soccer game and just bash on the wives. We didn't talk about you guys at all. Yeah. You never came up even a little bit. Good. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think one of the reasons that our relationship is strengthening in the way it, it is, is because we are each other's safe place now in a lot of ways. The world's hard, man. It's not easy to go out there and do your thing and take the the beating that you take and then come back. And the fact that we are each other's safe place, I think is really important. I know your insecurities and you know mine and we stay away from them and we try to (coughs) build up each other's good points. And I think that's really, really important. There's going to be plenty of people to tell me, you know, that my hair is thinning or, um, that I, why do you wear your hair like that? Yeah. What's up with his face? Like, those are things that people ask me. Well, I didn't need to hear you say that. <laughs> that's like not, your hair. What's up with his like, face? I mean, your Nothing hair. I can do about my face. <laughs> I meant, like, what's up with his hair? Ugh, Sorry. That's okay. Anyway, one of us is the other person's safe place, and the other person <laughs> sometimes is the other person's safe place. You can but tell I, I'm on cold medicine. Okay, good. Another thing on the list of um, things that show, you know, create peace in the relationship and show signs of respect. I, you know, I, a boundary for me, I won't accept no intimacy in our relationship. I know after all that we went through, 
you've said more than once that you would have been fine if we never had sex again. But I just believe it's super important and I'm not, you know, it's a boundary for me. That's a boundary for me. No, no. If we were just to say, we'll be, um, roommates, roommates, abstinent of intimacy for the rest of our lives, that would not be okay for me. And you respect that and you work on it. And I think, you know, we're not going to get into a sex and intimacy conversation here at the end of this podcast episode. There's plenty of those people can listen to if they'd like, but you work on it. And I mean, is it fair to say that you see benefits from that? Sure. Oh, that was we're not going a to glowing endorsement. <laughs> okay. This I'll is leave. not the conversation. I'll leave that topic then. And, you know, another boundary for us that creates peace and signs of respect in our marriage now is that no drinking is a boundary. And for me, I think that's really important. That's not your boundary. I assume that, that you have a boundary that you don't ever want me to drink again. Yes. But I don't, we don't talk about that. You don't tell me that. I have a boundary that I'll never drink again because I know it's not a solution and I know the potential for destruction. And so that's not, an ultimatum. That's not you imposing something on me, Matt, you can never drink again. We don't even need to go there. I know that I won't drink again. So that's an enforceable boundary because it's my boundary on myself. It's an I statement. Does that make sense? Yes. And it's one that I know you support. Yes. Cause I know in your sobriety that you're not going to drink again. Yeah. So I don't have to have that. I think that these things that we're talking about are after years of long-term sobriety and your curiosity to learn and grow and work on yourself and me to do the same. I don't think that those are things that could be taking place while there is dry drunk, white knuckling it, still actively drinking. So, yeah. So, boundaries over ultimatums seem to make the most sense, be the most effective. Certainly, they they have been um, for us in recent years as we've learned more about boundaries. And they have been, uh, you know, with people that we get to know. We see people have a lot more success. But don't beat yourself up if you're not there yet. It takes time and you know when you know. You'll know, you'll know when you know. And... Uh, We're going to sign off here and I'm going to go look in the mirror now and figure (laughs) out what's wrong with my face. (laughs) I did not mean to say that. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.